The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1864, William Sherman set out to march across Georgia and Carolinas to make Southerners howl. But not just any Southerners. He had in mind specifically one group. We'll find out who that group was, how they responded, and how effective the march was in changing Confederate opinions. When we talk tonight with Lisa Tendrich-Frank, author of The Civilian War, Confederate Women and Union Soldiers During Sherman's March, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Field Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. The same town as East Carolina University, but tonight not broadcasting from the Brewster Building because it's the end of the semester. I'm not in the office all day uh, and otherwise... Uh, there are, there are other reasons, uh, one of which is I'm home tonight because this is the first show coming to you over the brand new Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex computer. After fantasizing for 
a month or so, I bit the bullet, went ahead and ordered a new desktop computer, and I'm glorying now in the rapid response, the new monitor, wide monitor. The older one was about four inches wide and weighed 80 pounds. Now I have a modern thin monitor as big as uh, the paintings on the wall. It's it's nice to have a, a new machine and I'm enjoying that. What I'm not enjoying, however, is that uh, I'm experiencing, and this is the too much information category of tonight's show, a toothache. Uh, this is a new experience for me. I'm sure many of you have been through it, but the uh, pain is quite uh, unpredictable and surprising at the moment. It's not too bad. Hopefully it'll stay that way through the show. I have antibiotics and pain medications at hand. Uh, it certainly inspires a new round of empathy for the soldiers of the Civil War who, if they had a uh, uh, an abscess tooth, did not have the kinds of tools we have. They just had to gut it out, and if they got shot, as so many of them did in various ways. Uh, it's astonishing they were able to uh, to face what they did when the, the slightest modern inconvenience uh, health-wise is met with uh, antibiotics and pain medications. Well, in sports news, I know all of you are eager to hear about the North Carolina girls soccer tournament. Not the whole tournament, just J.H. Rose High School where my daughters went. They played their first, and it turns out, only tournament game last night, losing to their rivals from New Bern in penalty kicks after a 3-3 draw into overtime. Uh, it, it's sort of a phantom pain for me. My youngest daughter's been away two years now. I hasn't played with that team. I don't go to watch their games. I'm not one of those kind of shady old men watching the high school team play uh, who doesn't have a kid involved but I still feel when they, they lose a tough game. And meanwhile, here on campus at East Carolina University, last week we had no show. It was finals week and graduation week. Uh, had the pleasure of meeting Rick Atkinson. I'm sure many of you have read his uh, Liberation Trilogy about the U.S. Army in Europe in World War II, or The Long Great Line about the West Point class of 1966, which just had their 50th reunion this past week. Uh, Rick was the speaker, graduation speaker, and I was fortunate enough to be invited to have dinner with uh, him and the chancellor and a few others the night before. We got to talk a little history and ask him some of the same questions I ask uh, folks on this show about being a history writer without being a professional, professionally trained historian. And uh, we talked about the, the same things that come up on this show regularly, the gap between professional historians and uh, popular historians who often reach much broader audiences. And uh, as is the case, we'll hear from some of those in uh, weeks ahead. Next week, we've got uh, uh, Thomas F. Army Jr., who will be talking about his new book, Engineering Victory, How Technology Won the Civil War. No live show the following week, May 25th, will be off at the battlefields with the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, this hallowed ground tour. The plane tickets have been bought for those flying in. The bus is fueled and ready. It's not running yet, though. We've got a couple weeks. And even so, if you wanted to go, I'll bet if you called them, they'd find a space for you on the bus. So keep that in mind. 
Returning on June 1st, Candace Hooper, the author of Lincoln's General's Wives, Four Women Who Influenced the Civil War, for better or for, and for worse. And then on June 8th, Bridget Ford, author of Bonds of Union, Religion, Race, and Politics in a Civil War Borderland. Then we have two more weeks before the end of the academic year and the spring season of Civil War Talk Radio. On June 15th, Mark Bielski with his book, Sons of the White Eagle in the American Civil War. It's about uh, officers of Polish descent who fought on both sides in the war. We'll hear about their story. And wrapping it up on June 22nd, Christopher Lyle McElwain Sr., author of Civil War Alabama. There's another example of a uh, person who does something else for a living but has chosen to write history and will talk with him about that. You can get all of these books, or the great majority of them, from Amazon, but go there through the Civil War Talk Radio website, www.impedimentsofwar.org. If you go there, you will find links to these books, click on them, and that sends a few pennies to Civil War Talk Radio. Much appreciated. You can also donate directly to Civil War Talk Radio. Help me buy the books that we talk about on the show, or by the cranberry lime diet beverage that sits at my left hand here uh, to try to, uh, uh, with a lot of ice in it, to numb the the uh, dental work as we talk this evening. Or uh, I suppose I could use it to help make payments on a new computer, but I'm not asking you to fund that. Uh, think of it as other things. It's not tax deductible. It's just for my benefit. But if you've enjoyed the show and gotten something out of it, uh, there are expenses involved in keeping up the website. Uh, Mark Gaffney does that at Impediments of War. He also keeps up the Facebook page, and so contributions are welcome to help defray those costs. Well, tonight's guest is Lisa Tendridge Frank. Dr. Frank has written a book called The Civilian War, Confederate Women and Union Soldiers During Sherman's March, Uh, from Louisiana State University Press. It's an interesting uh, approach with a very uh, clear and and powerfully argued thesis. Let's find out. uh, Dr. Frank, are you there? I am. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, uh, looking at... I don't think you and I have crossed paths any... uh, Conferences. So, so let me just ask a, the background question or two to get us started. Uh, what brought you to the subject of writing about the Civil War? Um, I've always loved the Civil War, probably since I was a child. Um, you know, I read Gone with the Wind, but I also did a lot of traveling with my family. We went to Civil War battlefields. And then when I went to college at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, I took a fabulous Civil War class. Um, as part of my history major, and then took an even more specific Civil War class on biography, um, the Civil War through biography, which made me realize that it wasn't just about how many people died and, you know, what kinds of cannons were used and things like that, but about real people's experiences in war. Um, And it made it more interesting to me in a certain way, where I could try and figure out how people, you know, why did people go to war? Why were they willing to risk their lives? Um, How did the war affect them? So when I went to graduate school at the University of Florida, I immediately focused in on the Civil War. Well, that, and I agree. That's one of the things that I think pulled a lot of us into the the topic: the question of how did 
how did ordinary people uh, sort why did they choose to go into this? How did they experience it? Mm. It's one of the things they certainly write about the rest of their lives. And uh, I was in graduate school in the, the heyday of the social history revolution in the, the 80s. Uh, it had been going for a decade at least uh, by that time. And I used to wonder uh, why people didn't see the military history, especially the Civil War, was so critical to social history. This was the biggest thing in ordinary people's lives sure. at that time. So uh, uh, I think that that bridge has long been crossed, the, the separation between pure military and pure social history. We're uh, finding new important syntheses all the time. Uh, so uh, you are, again, I'm just going from the dust jacket, so apologies for not having more detail. Uh, is writing about uh, the Civil War teaching about it your day job, or do you uh, does this is this uh, one of various activities for you? I, I write about Civil War, and that's yeah, that's my job. <laughs> that, that's that's an enviable position. Occasionally, I teach, but right now, mostly just writing. Well, I, I, I hear that. Good, uh, best of success with continuing nice to do that. It's, uh, <laughs> so, um, in. When, when one sees the topic, uh, Confederate women in the Civil War, the, the first thought I think a lot of people have is an expectation that this is uh, a, a book that will treat, uh, how do I want to say this, um, treat Confederate women as an accessory to Sherman's march. But really, they're, they're the main character, uh, collectively speaking, in this book. Um, uh, how how important are they to, to Sherman's march? And that, that asks you to sum up your whole book. Just give a quick, uh, uh, just start in with that topic and we'll work from there. Sure. Well, as I started, when I started my research, I was sort of looking at where Sherman was going and how women were reacting to it um, in the broad sense. And as I kept um, reading women's letters and reading soldiers' letters, I realized that the soldiers were intentionally going to where the women lived, and the women were reacting to the invasion of their homes in ways that um, probably should have been predicted, but really weren't by the Union soldiers. So um, I started to really see the march not just as like the soldiers were accidentally going into people's homes because that happened to be where they were marching, which is how it had previously been portrayed, but rather as this was something specifically designed to upset women's lives and upset the households that were um, supporting the Confederate soldiers at the front. Um, so women really, I, I feel like the story can't be told without the women because the women are the ones getting the brunt of this march um, and this invasion, and the way they react to it affects the way the march was being carried out, and the way that the women reacted to it was also affecting the way Confederate men saw the march. Um, so... The story without the women's involvement is really incomplete, and just seeing the women as sort of a, a sideline or collateral damage doesn't tell the whole story. Well, you mentioned reading Gone with the Wind uh, as a young person, and my daughter who's home from uh, her sophomore year in college is reading Gone with the Wind uh, for pleasure right now, which warms the dad's history dad's heart uh, to see her doing that. but. In that book, I recall there's, uh, there's a scene where a very evil Union soldier threatens a Confederate woman who pulls out a gun and shoots him. 
is that the kind of uh, experience that you you found in these letters? Was is that the sort of confrontation we're talking about, or is it something more subtle than that? Well, there are all types of confrontations, and some of them are that drastic. Um, you don't often find Confederate women shooting Union soldiers because the, the repercussions would be horrible. Um, but you do have women who talk about hiding a gun in their skirts in case these soldiers um, tried anything improper, right? They're, they're terrified of sexual assault. Um, but in also in many ways, these confrontations are about the fact that these strange men are coming into private areas, not just the, the parlors, but they're going up into women's bedrooms, they're going into the kitchens, they're going into the children's rooms, and these women, even if they're not physically raped, feel violated in many ways. And there are women who are physically violated by Union soldiers, um, not as many as perhaps we might expect today, but um, some women are raped and other women talk about this and I mean, they're letters, so it's not like in hushed tones, but, you know, they won't mention their names sometimes, or they will just talk about a dishonor that was done to a woman, and she, was, she had gone crazy because of it. Um, so this is always something in the forefront of women's minds when these Union soldiers are coming into their homes. Sometimes the men are forcing their way in and, you know, it, um, demanding food, demanding supplies, demanding things like that. Sometimes they're just basically trashing the house. They're destroying um, the dishes, they're destroying the pianos, they're ripping up dresses. Um, women are constantly talking about how their letters, are, were ta- they were talking about how their letters were being ripped up and destroyed. And, of course, these aren't monetarily valuable to anybody, but to these women that was like a, a very private thing that they didn't want someone else to see. Diaries are um, being sent back north by the soldiers and the Southern women are feeling like, you know, their innermost thoughts now have been violated. Um, so, so many of them discuss in their diaries that they're hiding them, um, and they'll have a break in the diary, and they'll come back a month later and say, you know, it was spared from Yankee hands. Um, and some I'm, of them leave, just, like, nasty messages to the Yankees in their diaries. <laughs> if if uh, Step in here for a moment. We're going to take a short break, come back, talk more about how Sherman soldiers interacted with Confederate women Our guest tonight is Lisa Tendrich-Frank. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. 
the bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Lisa Tendridge-Frank, author of The Civilian War, Confederate Women and Union Soldiers During Sherman's March. We talked a bit in the first segment about how the march was not simply a random walk through the South, but uh, soldiers intentionally targeted the homes of wealthy Southern women, and not just their homes in general, but spaces within those homes. Um, Lisa, if we can use first names, please call me Jerry. Uh, uh, the I want to ask you about the historiography of what you've written here, because your, your book does not challenge the essential story of what happened that nobody really would argue. I mean, Sherman marches from Atlanta to Savannah, then through the Carolinas. Uh, the, the, the factual outline is well known. But you argue that the the, the relation, uh, that, how to put it, people like Mark Neely have argued that, that this march is not as it's been portrayed in, in Southern memory to this day as the most horrific event in human history. Everything was burned to the ground for miles around. Everybody was murdered. Uh, he points out this is not the case. Uh, a lot of things were not burned. Uh, very okay. few white civilians were killed. Very few were raped. Uh, compared to, say, the Eastern Front in World War II, it, it's relatively mild. Uh, you, you challenge, not the facts, but the interpretation that he puts on this. Could you talk about that? Sure. Uh, the standard narrative, of course, of where Sherman went, you know, Sherman kept track of, the, kept track of this, and the Union Army kept track of this. Um, but the standard narrative also says that, you know, the Union Army went unopposed through the South. Um, mm-hmm. I argue that there may not be a traditional military opposition when they're going through Georgia and the Carolinas, but there is opposition, um, and it's an opposition that the Union Army takes very seriously. Very early in the war, Sherman talks about all the people of the South being against the Union Army, um, and that he wants to make Georgia howl. These are not things that are necessarily military, um, but Sherman saw the benefits of trying to take the support away from the Confederate Army. So I want to sort of get the military interpretation to look at things other than just the battles, other than just, you know, when soldiers meet soldiers, but to realize that there are military conflicts when civilians meet soldiers, too, and that the, um, the mindset behind what Sherman's doing, and Sheridan did something similar in the Shenandoah Valley as well, um, but their mindset is they know that they're going into an area that is populated by wealthy civilians. It's not just any civilians, but these mm-hmm. are the people 
that encourage secession, that were supporting secession. Um, and so that's also part of the military conflict. And people have glossed, historians have glossed over this um, and just decided that the women are just sort of the collateral damage of the battle. And because, you know, the whole town was, every town they went through wasn't burned to the ground and the civilians survived, that somehow that made it, um, I don't want to say less important, but it was the women's roles really are minimized. And instead, I want people to realize that it wouldn't have happened unless the women were there and, the, and Sherman and his commanders weren't trying to basically put down the women. Um, they saw this. They saw that the support of the civilians was incredibly important to the Confederate war effort without the women um, sending in supplies, sending in clothes, and sending letters to the front encouraging their husbands and their sons and their brothers and their sweethearts to continue fighting, these soldiers might well have just given up. And the soldiers' letters back to their families exhibit this. The soldiers are constantly, the Confederate soldiers were constantly during Sherman's march writing about how worried they were they hadn't heard about it. They were going to desert to come home. Um, if you can find sometimes the women's letters back there, don't come home. We're fine. We'll take care of ourselves. You take care of what's going on there and defeat the Yankees. Um, but this is something very important to the southern psyche. Um, so this psychological warfare, um, this fear, uh, putting fear into southern women is very much a part of the military story of Sherman's March. So the Sherman's army doesn't encounter much organized military resistance, but its purpose is to demonstrate northern power, the power of the federal government, and to weaken Confederate armies by striking at the economy of the South. This, this again, is a traditional narrative. You, you mm -hmm. destroy the farms, destroy the supplies. Sure. You're focusing on the, the psychological capital of the South. The, well, both. The, I mean, it is also, I, I focus also on destroying the supplies, but I think mm -hmm. what's been missed from this whole thing is that going into someone's house is equally as destructive. So it feels to those people whose houses are being robbed and plundered and, you know, their wedding dresses are being paraded around. Um, this is something to them, it's, it's just as bad as having the flower stores taken away. Of course, they're not going to starve without, you know, the baby's blankets and their um, fancy dresses, but they feel like they've been personally attacked because they have. Mm. And to well, minimize that because it's happening to women um, leaves out this very important part of the story. Well, and you point out in the fact that they are women is, is central to this, that these spaces that the men, the northern men invade when they go into a southern home uh, are very clearly defined. This is the era of the, mm -hmm. the cult of domesticity. The, there are very clearly gender-specific spaces within uh, an sure. upper-class home. Uh, talk, talk about that, if you would. So, um, as you say, it is very gendered. The household is very gendered. This is the space for women, um, and it's a protected space for women. So the parlor, of course, would be open to visitors, but usually visitors that you knew or that had some connection to you. Um, during Sherman's March, now you have strangers not just coming to the parlor, but coming into bedrooms. So um, women's bedrooms are suddenly filled with strange men, um, sometimes in very... Um, I don't want to say violent, but very passionate encounters. So um, one woman talks about how their bedroom, the soldiers are in the bedroom and they're tearing up the sheets and they're going through all the drawers. And she's terrified 
that next they're going to, you know, tear off her clothes or something? Or what are they going to find in her bedrooms? Are they going to take her father's paintings? Um, are they going to steal something that a, long, a, a relative who's died in the war has left behind? And then there, it, it's like a, a strike at these, these people's hearts. Um, and bedrooms, of course, would be absolutely off-limits to any man you weren't related to. So now you have total, not just strange men, but men with guns, um, very threatening strange men, coming into bedrooms. Um, oftentimes the women had previously assumed that these spaces would be safe because of these ideas about female space. Um, so many women hid a lot of their valuables in their mattresses, filled up the mattresses with letters, clothes, um, silver, whatever they wanted to hide. Um, and many of them discovered, much to their dismay, that the soldiers came in and took knives to the mattresses and tore things up and found these things. Um, I have one woman who was complaining because they took things out of the baby's crib while the baby was still in it. Um, so women understood these spaces as private. The Union soldiers understood these state spaces as private as well. And that's, I think, they understand that what they're doing is a violation. It, as I was reading this, I, I kept, found myself going back and forth from the 19th to the 21st century. Uh, on the one hand, as, as we try and teach students to do, to be empathetic, to understand the past as a different world, and for a strange armed man to enter a woman's bedroom is an extraordinary violation of propriety. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm, coming, I'm, I'm speaking to you from North Carolina, where we're having a political dust-up about the uh, gendered uh, space mm-hmm. of bathrooms, and uh, uh, people are exhibiting extraordinary passion and uh, a certain amount of ignorance uh, in this argument, but it shows that people do care deeply about this, even if there's no actual remote threat of physical violence involved. Sure. Well, uh, and I think anyone whose home has ever been robbed can mm-hmm. feel that feeling of, like, having yourself, your space violated. You know, it's, to think some strange person went through your drawers. It, it, it is a, uh, it, it does leave one, one helpless. And certainly the, the, I guess that brings home the point of Sherman's march is to demonstrate the helplessness of the, the so-called Confederacy, that the mm-hmm. Union force can go wherever it pleases, uh, both from Atlanta to Savannah and also into individuals private rooms and open their... And Sherman uh, even says that. I mean, he says this march will demonstrate that Davis is powerless to protect them, that, you know, the Confederacy can't help their women. Um, So he's very clear about it, and it just, I think, a better reading of it is to think about what kind of power he's trying to show. So the the, where I keep flipping back to the 21st century is, is the... Again, the the horrible wars we've seen in our lifetimes and the, uh, the previous generation, where uh, the Eastern Front in World War II keeps coming back to mind, and just horrible uh, genocidal slaughters of populations, and here's someone having the vapors over her wedding dress getting torn up. But if these were this were in Minsk or Kiev, the whole family would be lined up and shot. Uh, the wedding dress would be the least of their problems. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not a, f- a fair historical comparison to make. I know that. Uh, and, and so I found myself going back and forth, having to tell myself that these women in 1864 didn't have that frame of reference of, of Hitler's troops. Uh, 
this was horrible to them. Am I struggling and I don't think, I mean, I don't want to compare it to those mm-hmm. types of things. There is a fear by many of these women that they will be shot um, or that they will be raped, um, which many of them call a fate worse than death. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's more the fear of what might happen once you have these situations with people, you know, enemies in your home. So how you, you said... This was intentional. Uh, you have several quotes from Sherman, the famous one where he says, I, I can make Georgia howl. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, your angle here is that he's not just talking about uh, uh, politically or, or militarily, but uh, can, can get these women who've been writing letters to the front saying, you know, stand up for our rights, don't come home yet, uh, that he can get these people to, to howl differently. Uh, so I guess two questions. One is, is how how does this play out intentionally? Do the troops ever actually make tactical adjustments to go to a place where there's going to be rich pickings and, and lots of wealthy plantations? Do you, do you have evidence of that? Well, they not only is the route go through the wealthiest areas, but in many places, the, both the, sol- the Union soldiers and then the Confederate women talk mm-hmm. about how the soldiers are looking for particular plantation owners. Um, they're looking for Howell Cobb's plantation in, in Georgia, and they're talking about it. They're saying it out loud. In um, South Carolina, they destroy the wealthiest um, slaveholding plantations. They burn, um, they burn several of them to the ground. So they're, say, you know, they're asking people, and one, um, some women will talk about how they tell, you know, we know who your father is, and we know he's very wealthy, and we can tell not just from the stuff in your house, but we know his name. We're gonna, we're gonna take all your stuff. We're gonna, we're gonna make you feel the, what war really is. It's not, you know, it's not something fun. It's not a parade. One of one of the chaplains with Sherman says, you know, we're gonna make them these civilians know that war is not just a holiday parade. Um, so they do, you know, I don't know if Sherman sat down and said, hey, here, here are the maps and here are where the wealthiest plantations are. But that's where his route goes. Um, I don't have, you can't find the conversations he had about this, but you can see where he goes. And he went through the wealthy plantation areas. Um, and when he, he, got, he and his troops were about to um, go into North Carolina, he spoke to his troops and he said, there are going to be some people in the mountainous areas that are poorer and therefore less dedicated to the Confederacy. Treat them more kindly. Um, and they, they changed their behavior slightly, but when they get again to the, the big plantations, they burn and they, they go into the houses and they plunder things. So, the and some other historians have, have looked at this. Uh, I'm thinking uh, Jacqueline Glass Campbell's book on the, uh, uh, the march through the Carolinas. Mm-hmm. And uh, she finds that the, the effect on, on Southern women in the line of march, who encountered the Union soldiers, is not the same thing that uh, we had heard from previous scholars, uh, uh, Drew Faust and others, that that the march was successful in, in weakening the nationalism of Confederate women. Uh, did you find the same thing? Oh, absolutely. Um, the women who who personally faced Sherman's troops um, become very vehemently Confederate. And they are the ones who are writing to their family members and in their journals that they never want to give up 
um, they're going to fight the Yankees, even if it's their great-great-grandson who has to go fight the Yankees. They feel like the behavior of the Union soldiers in their homes demonstrates that the, the Northerners and the Southerners are from different races, almost different species. They don't belong together. They can't coexist together. Um, that that invasion of a private space shows them to be monsters. Um, and so these are the women who are calling for, you know, no end to the war. So this, in that sense, then, Sherman's strategy is not really successful. It's not successful in basically convincing the women to give up on the war. However, the husbands and sons and fathers of these women in the path of Sherman's march are often the ones who are completely demoralized because part of Southern honor is to take care of your women, to protect your women, and they have failed at that. Um, so many of these men, some of them desert, but many of them just give up. This is just, they, they can't, they failed at their mission. They so haven't and, protected and, their families. And these men, for the most part, are with Lee in Virginia or with Hood yeah. in Tennessee when this happens. Correct. And they're, they're completely demoralized. No, I can't say completely, but um, they're demoralized. They feel like they just, what do they do next? You know, this was the whole point of going off tour, supposedly it was to protect their women, and now their women have been left at the mercy of enemy soldiers. For most of these soldiers, these Confederate soldiers, they have no idea what's happened on the home front. They don't know if their families are alive, if they're hungry, if they've been forced out, if they have no home anymore. Um, and they write all of these sort of desperate letters home saying, you know, I can't hear from you, I don't know what to do, I hope you still have a home, I hope you've you know, moved in with my mother. I hope you've found somewhere to live. I hope you're protected. They, they really, it's the, the not knowing is horrible for them. So they, they are certainly in the horns of a dilemma of honor. It's dishonorable yeah. to desert Lee's army. It's dishonorable to let your family suffer, uh, and they have to choose one or the other. We're going to take another short break. We'll come back and talk more with Lisa Tendridge-Frank, author of The Civilian War, Confederate Women, and Union soldiers during Sherman's March. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Lisa Tendridge-Frank, author of The Civilian War, Confederate Women and Union Soldiers During Sherman's March. As we discussed in the last segment, the confrontations between uh, Union soldiers and Confederate women were not simply an incidental side effect of the march, but part of the very part of Sherman's strategic and uh, psychological warfare thinking to dishearten the Confederacy, one key population to strike at would be the elite women who uh, supported the war with their their efforts and especially the encouragement of the men in their lives to keep fighting. Uh, Lisa, I wanted to ask you a question about Sherman's March. I don't know if you came across this anywhere in your research. Uh, Mark Dunkelman has been on the show uh, following a New York regiment uh, on the path of Sherman's March found this story in more than one town that he visited, which is you get to the town today and they have a marker about Sherman's March, but you notice there's a lot of antebellum buildings there. He clearly didn't burn it to the ground. And the answer is one of two things. Either Sherman himself stayed in this town and said this was the prettiest town he'd ever seen, and therefore he ordered it spared, or uh, the even better story is, well, he would have done it, but he had a girlfriend back before the war who came from this town, and he ordered it spared for that reason. Have, have you found either of those in your uh, uh, research anywhere? I've encountered the stories that that's why the town wasn't burned, <laughs> but I, I seriously doubt the truthfulness of that. Um, more likely, you know, Sherman was not out to burn all the towns down, um, and the soldiers burned, you know, Atlanta was burned as they left Atlanta, but there's much debate over how that started. The same thing in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and it's often not, I, there was no intention to go through burning every, you know, people talk about Sherman and the scorched earth policy, um, but Sherman did not set out to burn the South down. He set out to basically tame the South and bring the South back into the Union. If you burn everything down, you make a lot of enemies. Um, and I think the best evidence of this is when he gets to Savannah, you know, Atlanta, they have burned down a good mm-hmm. portion of it, not all of it, but it starts with the train depot, which makes sense for a military movement. They don't want the Confederates to be able to bring, you know, supplies back in. Um, but when Sherman and his troops get to Savannah, he talks about how, well, because it was very easy to take Savannah we're going to treat it nicely, and we're going to try and, you know, get these Southerners to like us. Um, the Southerners don't. But he's, he uses Savannah kind of an, as, an, as an example of what can happen if the South just surrenders, basically. So Atlanta, you know, there was a long campaign to take Atlanta. You can treat it harshly. You evict all the citizens. Um, you make the South really mad. Um, but if Savannah was, you know, the, the Confederate soldiers just left and the Union soldiers came in, you don't have to, you know, Meet out any punishment, really. Now, the the focus of your your book is on the plantation homes, the elite white women of the South who are politically uh, active, at least within their their families. 
did Sherman's men encounter, uh, and this is, this is a question outside the scope of the book, uh, but I'm just curious if you encountered evidence of what happens when they encounter uh, middle class uh, yeoman farmers, uh, poor whites along the way. Did, do they have the same kind of interactions? Do they have the same kind of political effect? They don't. Um, when they encounter people that they assume to be more loyal to the Union, they do not treat them as harshly. Um, these are Sherman's orders to his soldiers, in fact. Um, and the, unfortunately, a lot of those those families, those women, do not leave the records that the elite women do because you know they're not they don't have the time to sit down and keep a journal, and often they're illiterate. Um, but the soldiers do talk about the difference between wealthy white secessionist women as opposed to southern women who you know may or may not be secessionists. Um, I don't know if they had as many encounters with them. I don't have the evidence for that. In speaking of, of evidence, you make the point that you did not rely on memoir evidence. Uh, everyone uh, listening to the show has heard about the uh, the diary from Dixie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're familiar with some of the more more famous memoirs of the Civil War. Diary from Dixie isn't really a diary; it's a post-war construction, as as we know, Mary Boykin Chestnut's book. But she did actually keep a diary, and mm-hmm. many women did, and you use those heavily. Why not their memoirs? Um, their memory is just so tricky that everybody remembers um, how heroic they were in the past or how the worst possible thing must have happened to them, but they stood up to it. And so I didn't want to get women talking about what happened to them a year ago or 10 years ago or even really six months ago. I wanted their immediate reaction to what happened. Um, I wanted to know who they, how they encountered these soldiers, how, and the same with the soldiers. I used the soldiers' letters that they sent home, you know, within the week of what happened. Mm-hmm. I, it gives you, for I think, a better sense of the immediate experience as opposed to the remembered experience. Um, I worked at the Shoah Foundation for a while where they, you know, do Holocaust memoir. Um, where I, they, they're taking, they took interviews of Holocaust mm-hmm. survivors, um, right. recorded them, right? And people who weren't even at the camps where Mengele was, they all think that that's the doctor who examined them because that's the name that they've heard over and over again mm-hmm. of this horrible Nazi doctor. Um, and so, in the sense of, of Sherman's March, you know, you, if you look at memoirs, you know, all the women, everybody, if you go into any archive, you talk to the archivists in any of these places, the archivist always has a story about how, you know, this family member did this, and this family member, you know, stood up and spoke back to this soldier or hid the silver in the, you know, there must be silver in every river. Um, <laughs> because everyone's silver apparently was there. But it, it wasn't, there's, you know, physically there's no way that this happened to every single person. Um, but like I said, memory is a very tricky thing, and everyone portrays themselves very nicely in a memoir. Um, and I wanted to avoid those pitfalls of what, how did I get around what their memory of the situation was as opposed to what the actual situation was, right? Like, you can see Mary Chestnut's diary, and then you can see the edited version that she wanted published, and she cuts out a lot of her catty comments about people, um, and she's portraying herself, you know, to be as gracious as possible. I didn't want that gracious side of people. I wanted to see, you know, what was going on at the time. What did they think at the time? How did they feel at the time? Um, And still, of course, you know, this is hours or days later, but it gives you, I I think, a better sense of 
the actual situation. Especially when, so I also um, didn't want it just to be one-sided. If you only look at the Confederate women's story, then, mm-hmm. you know, they're all heroes, right? They think they're all heroes. But if you get the soldiers saying the same thing that the Confederate woman said, you can see what actually happened there. You get a sense of it. You know, Confederate women will say, oh, I, I talked back to this Yankee, and then the Union soldiers saying, these women cursed at me. Even if they're not talking about the same women, they're talking about it over and over again in the same situation. So you have Confederate women and Union soldiers talking about pianos being axed and um, wedding dresses being torn up and baby diapers being strewn around the yard. Then it's not just one person saying it's, you know, hundreds of people saying it from different sides. Um, It gives you a sense that this did, in fact, happen. And, and, but they see it through such different lenses. That was one of the things that, sure. that comes out in all these examples. The uh, the women are, are are very much, in their view, the victims of this this horrible. Not just the individual soldiers entering their uh, private spaces, but the federal government entering the South, mm-hmm. uh, taking away their liberty, and the northern soldiers see these southern women as this elite parasitical class living off the labor of slaves sure. uh, and bringing this horrible war on an otherwise unwilling country, uh, they're the ones who have uh, something to answer for. So it, 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 it's interesting to see. You present them saying the same things, but they, they see each other in very mm-hmm. uh, a very different light. What about slavery in all this? Uh, talk a little bit about that that role by Sherman's men and Sherman going through these wealthy plantation areas at the mm-hmm. same, while they're going through it both intentionally and unintentionally they're freeing slaves um, and they're allowing um, enslaved people to run away to union lines they have they get this great following of what was then called contrabands of following them you know through the march um, becoming sometimes working in the camp sometimes many soldiers would complain about them being a hindrance because these are more mouths to feed and things like that. But um, striking, it also struck that the household, if you take away the slaves that have provided all the labor, the southern household is going to perhaps crumble um, from all of this. So um, some people would argue that Sherman, you know, intentionally is liberating slaves. Some would say he really didn't want to. But in any case, it's happening. Um, And enslaved people are gaining their freedom, taking their freedom, um, but making the best of the fact that here are Union soldiers coming through. Some enslaved women are terrified that they, too, are going to be raped, um, and some are raped. There's more evidence of rape of black women than of white women along Sherman's march, um, perhaps because of ideas about, um, you know, racial ideas about gender and and the protection of white womanhood. Um, But African-American women are are terrified of these Union soldiers sometimes, but it also gives them an opportunity to get out of slavery. It's a very complicated sort of thing. It, it really is. It, it highlights uh, the, the, the white women complain, one of their many complaints about the, the Union soldiers is that they are setting the slaves free. Mm-hmm. And the, the irony, these, these terrible people taking away our liberty, and the worst thing they're doing is setting slaves free, giving them their liberty. Sure, and uh, many are very shocked that their their enslaved people are actually leaving. They're like, I can't believe yes. you, you know, she went off with the Yankees. How dare she? You know, thought she it, loved us. 
it, the, the, the irony is, is, is thick, and it, it causes, it, as I said, I had this experience all the way through the book of vacillating sympathies back and forth. Uh, yes, it would be horrible to have a strange armed man invade your house, and I would not want it to happen to my house uh, or to, to go into have my wife home alone when this happens. Uh, it would be a horrifying thing. On the other hand, as you just uh, cite, the, the, the blithe assumption that they are entitled to this position built on the backs of their slaves mm-hmm. uh, becomes grating. Uh, and it, once in a while you find yourself reading the book thinking, well, shouldn't have started the darn war, uh, which was exactly Sherman's point. Uh, sure. So I and and the point of the you know I don't want people to be sympathetic to really anyone I don't that's not my intention my intention is more just to think about how gender is sort of this overarching thing that impacted both the way people reacted and the way the soldiers behaved like how they designed a campaign you can't just take it in a vacuum you have to think about the area they were going into why they were going into that area and it it brings in you know race class gender all sorts of things um, but you can't take out the fact that this is an area heavily populated with women because all the men who are there are either way too young to fight, way too old to fight, sick, or they've run away. You know, if, if there are able-bodied southern men in these areas, they hide when Sherman's soldiers are coming through, so they won't be captured and taken prisoner. So, and that really is, is I think, the underlying message and certainly a, a, something any reader would benefit from this book, the idea of instead of viewing women as... Uh, they're only significant in the Civil War if they assume a military-related role, if they're a nurse uh, mm-hmm. or a spy or a prostitute or somehow connected to the Army in some way, then we'll pay attention to them. Uh, but you point out in their roles as civilians, these women in the line of Sherman's march uh, are not just an accessory, not just an accident. They are, in some ways, the reason why the march goes where it does and, and the interactions the soldiers have with them are... are part of the intent, Sherman's intention in the march to begin with. Sure. Uh, really a, a very interesting uh, argument that, that looks at something in plain sight. Everybody knows these interactions happened and, and they've never been looked at uh, in the detail uh, or with the analysis that you present. And I think it's a very valuable thing. Uh, okay. in, in 15 seconds, do you have a, another project in, in the hopper? I'm right now working a little more about the household in the Civil War. Um, and how the household gets reshaped by the Civil War, how the Union Army attacks the household, um, not just Sherman, but Sheridan and Grant, and why that is a valuable um, military strategy for them. Well, that's something we can look forward to. Uh, readers, take a look at The Civilian War, Confederate Women and Union Soldiers During Sherman's March. Uh, listeners, I call you readers, you are readers. Listeners, you'll want to do that. Uh, Lisa Tendridge-Frank is the author. Lisa, thanks so much for being on the show this evening. Thanks so much for having me, Jerry. And, as always, listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.